We forecast prices and fundamentals. Whether you're a trader, producer, or consumer, you can hedge your bets with Montel's diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at salesatmontelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. This week's topic is gas. European gas prices have surged to multi-year highs in recent weeks amid concerns over supply, both pipeline and LNG, very high carbon prices, colder weather and low storage levels. To talk us through current market dynamics, what's really happening at the moment, the main price drivers and the outlook for the coming weeks is Wayne Bryan of Refinitiv and his colleague Irina Sereda, also from Refinitiv but based in Kiev. A very warm welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hi, Richard. Nice to speak to you again. Been a while. Welcome back, Wayne. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Things are on the up. <laughs> so, yeah, life's looking a lot better. Happy that the barber shops have reopened? Yeah, always, always good to be able to go and do those sort of things at the gym as well. And, yeah, and obviously the local hostilleries. So, yeah, I think we're definitely in a better place. Excellent. And, uh, Irina, how, how's life in Kiev under COVID? We, we don't hear so much about the Ukraine. Yeah, actually, it is getting better. We are out of lockdown since the uh, 30th of April. Now we are allowed to go to restaurants, you know, to visit uh, shopping malls. So it is getting better. Excellent, excellent. I want to start off by talking about current market dynamics. Wayne, was the market or sort of market participants a bit complacent given, you know, what happened last year and very low prices? I mean, you know, this year has been quite a rude shock. In terms of prices, it's definitely a rude shock. If you look at the sort of levels where prices are trading at, on Thursday, we're seeing prices around 25 euros per megawatt hour on TTF day ahead. If you go back to this time last year, we were at five, <laughs> 5 euros per megawatt hour. And I was even having a, having a little look earlier, and I think by the 21st of May, we'd fallen to three euros a megawatt hour. So that alone tells you a different, similar story with the MVP, really, which is an unbelievable 53 pence per therm higher today or Thursday than it was uh, in 2020. So price-wise, it's a completely different situation. And of course, the fundamentals of the market are quite different this year as well. So yeah, there's quite a lot going on at the moment that's contributing to this high price environment we're currently in. What are the main drivers, Wayne? Well, the extant storage concern is obviously uh, the main the main problem here compared to last year when storages were quite elevated and full quite quickly. This year, Current storage levels are around 30% for the EU. Again, this time last year, we're around 65%. So mm. huge amount to be replenished. And then normally, obviously, April is the start of injection season. But we've actually seen quite a lot of withdrawals. There was net withdrawals at some of the large facilities that Gazprom has storage in, uh, Hyden and Rydeck, Bergamir as well. UK storage facilities are close to critical levels. And again, that's driven by the cold weather. We've seen it's the coldest April in around 35 years. And that's seen a real unseasonable amount of incremental heating demand still here. Uh, even today, it's quite cold in the UK and similar story across Northwest Europe, really, which is, again, driving that additional demand, and which is fed into the prices. We've also got a slowdown in LNG at the moment. We've seen a 
change in the Asian uh, buying behavior in terms of restocking starting a bit earlier, perhaps slightly burnt from what happened um, earlier this year and the back end of last year. Uh, but we can we can touch upon that uh, a bit later on. Also, look at related fuels, look at carbon, carbon surging towards 50 euros a ton, I think. Again, this time last year, carbon was around 20 euro mark, 22 euro mark. Coal, oil were all depressed uh, uh, this time last year. So there is actually quite a lot of uh, bullish events uh, going on in the market at the moment. A lot more maintenance as well. Last year, a lot of maintenance was cancelled due to COVID. This year, we're seeing extensive maintenance in Norway and on the UK continental shelf. So there's quite a lot of things. And of course, the big news yesterday just to really the sort of another bullish nail in the, the prices coffin was the situation at Montoir where they haven't detected a leak in a pipeline. So they've now send out will now be zero for the remainder of the month, which previously was nominated at I think two seven six gigawatt hours per day. So <laughs> there's a lot going on. Yes. I could go on, but I think we'll mm. stop there for the moment. Absolutely. So so we're recording, you know, late on Thursday and this happened. The Montoir was was on Wednesday, but yeah. You know, now with warmer weather ahead, is this going to see prices ease maybe as we head into summer? Well, definitely. I think once the, I mean, in North Australia, I think you see a rise next week shortly. But again, they stay quite suppressed for most of May, which is, isn't great. But if you look at some of the long range, longer range forecasts, we're seeing a warmer than average, perhaps June and July, which hopefully would compensate for it. But I think at the moment, yes, uh, warming up the temperatures would help because we would see a drop in LDZ demand, which again is is high, kind of exacerbated by, by COVID and obviously more people still under work from home conditions, etc. But I think what we need is, is a bit more on the supply front as well, really, especially from LFG, which has slowed. I think it ramped up massively in April, I think 20% increase month on month. And we were close to last year's levels, but this this month thus far, We've seen a slowdown for various different reasons, including I mentioned what uh, was reported uh, on Wednesday afternoon. Well, I want to touch on some of these issues a bit later on in the pod, but there's also uh, well, another aspect which you haven't mentioned. I'd like to bring in Irina here that, you know, was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, we had an issue about Russia and, and transit capacity through Ukraine. What was going on here, Irina? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. So it actually happened on 27th of April. That was uh, the day when uh, Ukrainian PSO offered some extra capacity on the Russian border or at the Sudra border point. Uh, and actually, that was the first time when Ukrainian PSO was uh, allowed to offer interruptible capacity on the Russian border. And according to EU network code regulation, the TSO is only allowed to offer interruptible capacity once the firm capacity is booked. So that's what uh, happened uh, back in April. All capacity for May has been booked by Gazprom and uh, it allowed Ukrainian TSO to offer some interruptible capacity. And that was a big event on the market as everyone was closely watching what would happen if Gazprom is going to, to book it or not. And um, the result of the auction was that zero capacity has been allocated, meaning that Gazprom was not interested in booking some more capacity for May. And uh, it is, uh, yeah, it is interesting to, to see what will happen for June. What do you expect for June? Do you see then the Gazprom to book this interruptible capacity next month? Yeah, it is highly likely that Gazprom will book a firm capacity as it usually does. And uh, looking back into previous months, uh, yeah, the company is usually booking a firm capacity. But for interruptible, it's a big question because we are heading into 
injection season and uh, as Wayne already mentioned before, storages across Europe are heavily depleted, including the ones that uh, Gazprom has shared in. So it, it is a very good and interesting question to, to watch for, for the next months uh, to see if Gazprom will be willing to, to transit more gas by Ukraine. For those listeners who are not aware of the difference between firm and interruptible capacity, what is the difference there? Firm capacity is uh, basically a guaranteed capacity. While interruptible one, it depends on something and usually it depends on, on, uh, on the physical flows. What was Gazprom doing here? Can you explain why it didn't book any of this interruptible capacity? What, what's the reasons behind that? I mean, we can only speculate, I know, but because you're not a Gazprom spokesperson. But what, what, what do you think lies behind that decision? Gazprom can uh, choose different strategies for this injection season. One of them would be to sell less gas on its ESP platform. And uh, by uh, dropping sales on ESP, it will offset its uh, refill of uh, storages in Europe. Another strategy would be to uh, send more gas by Ukraine as we had uh, further into injection season. And uh, we've seen uh, for the last months, Gazprom has been uh, sending more gas at uh, actually at capacity via Yamal and via Nord Stream. So the only way where the company can send more gas would be via Ukraine. Is there a political element to this? And a little reminder from Gazprom to say, you know, you guys are very reliant on our fuel here. Yes, of course. I think with, with Gazprom, it's always uh, some geopolitical uh, background and, and we've seen it before. So maybe, uh, yeah, maybe uh, this time it's again uh, some kind of strategy from Gazprom to, to maybe to lift the prices artificially in Europe or maybe some, some other kind of strategies there. So a combination of sort of economics, you know, kind of, you know, exploiting a tight market in Europe, but also a part geopolitics as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. What's your view here, Wayne? I mean, does the EU need Ukrainian gas? Well, we need Russian gas for sure. <laughs> yeah, why are Ukraine? Absolutely. Yeah, it's not, yes, yeah, yeah. most definitely. Yeah, I think we do. And I think it's interesting what Irina was saying there, and it's something we've all been thinking about, is what is Gazprom's strategy behind it? Especially when you look at where their storages are, the fact they didn't take up any interruptible capacity at the last auction. It could be, and again, this is like you said, everyone's got their own sort of theory behind this. It could be a case of waiting until later into the summer season, then start the backloading injections. Or it could be a case of highlighting, like you mentioned at the start, hey, we're important. You need our gas. And don't forget Nord Stream. Nord Stream 2 is 95% complete. And then the latest advice they were saying that, yeah, we, we should, the construction is very close to being complete, dependent on certain things like the weather, et cetera. And it's in full compliance with the grants, et cetera. So we could see that one of the reasons too. So there's, there's several strategies here or several reasons behind what Gazprom may or may not be planning over the next few months. But one thing's for sure is that they will dictate if and when they decide to whether buy additional volumes or put additional volumes into the market uh, and will be held hostage to that. As we saw when they didn't, when there was rumours they were going to buy the additional capacity, I think the market fell 6%. As soon as the auction happened, as Irina said, that 6% was swiftly retraced. So it just shows where the market views these additional capacities. And I still think Gazprom will need to do it over this summer, for sure. The other aspect here is there's, a, you know, there's an election in Germany in September. According to current polls, the Greens are, you know, are ahead and they're not so keen on Nord Stream 2. So do you think there is a danger here that uh, 
should there be a government with a green chancellor that, that the whole thing could collapse? Well, yeah, but as you remember, when I, um, and I've harked back to this before, when I presented for you guys in Dusseldorf in what seems like mm. an eternity ago, and I think it was 2018, we were speaking about Nord Stream 2 then, the political side of it, and I still think it will go ahead, and I don't think the Green Party could stop. I think even I think a couple of weeks ago, the German energy minister said that we still need Nord Stream, and I think Germany definitely needs it. So there will be opposition, of course, but I still think it, it's. I still think it's going to go ahead. There's been a lot of time, money invested into this project, and we are at 95 percent completion with 120 or so kilometres left. So surely <laughs> it's going to go ahead and, and resume or commence commercial operations. But who knows when? That's the that's the point. I think the only certainty is that there's going to be some sort of delay, or it's certainly not going, not not on on track. But um, what's the view from the Ukraine, Irina? I mean, uh, you know about Nord Stream two. Yeah. So in terms of uh, Ukraine, uh, looking into short perspective uh, for 2020-2024, uh, we've got an agreement with Gazprom where it is uh, agreed that uh, uh, sixty five BCM. Uh, has to be booked or paid for in 2020, and for the rest of the period, it is 40 BCM. So Ukrainian TSO and Ukraine are secured for up to 2024. But uh, looking into longer-term perspective, Ukraine would have to think about alternative ways of how to utilize its system and how to keep it operational. Because as we've seen with uh, previously with Nord Stream 1, Gazprom diverted quite a, a big portion of uh, gas transit away from Ukraine and to Nord Stream. So probably that is uh, something that will happen with, with Nord Stream 2 as well. And we, we don't have to forget about Turk Stream, which is also quite important one. And it is already diverting a big portion of, uh, of Russian gas transit from Ukraine. So the launch of Turk Stream has, has affected some flows via the Ukraine then, Irina? Yes, yes, of course. We, we saw a big impact of uh, launch of Turk Stream uh, on Ukraine. And um, uh, since it started in early 2020, we saw that uh, volumes that Ukraine was transiting to Bulgaria, Greece, Northern Macedonia, Turkey, everything was, was diverted to, to Turk Stream and, and Ukraine was, was not getting anything. And then uh, again, early this year, we saw the extension of uh, Turk Stream uh, onshore section, which also diverted uh, some volumes uh, from Ukraine uh, and uh, to Turk Stream and uh, supply to, to Serbia was, uh, was done via Turk Stream, which is around uh, 2 BCM. Uh, and uh, then again, uh, starting from April, uh, Romania joined uh, supplies from Turk Stream and uh, Ukraine uh, is not uh, transiting Gaza anymore. So this leaves only Moldova in the southern direction that receives gas uh, via Ukraine. Another big risk would be uh, if Hungary uh, decide, uh, decides to join supplies from Turk Stream later this year, as they are already planning to have a link uh, with Serbia, which would allow them to, to get uh, gas via Turk Stream rather than Ukraine. So overall, Ukraine already lost around 15 BCM of gas transit, uh, of Russian gas transit, and in other 10 to 12 BCM in case Hungary decides to switch to, to Turk Stream as well. So it's a, it's a big volume of gas that Ukraine is, is losing. Yeah, that's a sizable reduction. So obviously, at the moment, with 
a lot of LNG being redirected to, to Asia. You know, Europe is more dependent on, on Russian supply. But what needs to happen to get some of these LNG cargoes sort of coming back to, to Europe, Wayne? I mean, do we need a sort of narrow price spread between the, the, the Japan, the JKM price and the TTF or MBP? To entice it back? Yes, most definitely, because we've seen volume start to get redirected towards Asia over recent weeks. And as I mentioned, there's a bit of a surprise here. We expected quite a large surplus of LNG into Northwest Europe this summer, and we still can see it, obviously, later on in the summer, because we're not going to be seeing the level of US cancellations uh, that we saw last summer. Uh, but at the moment, you've got this strong restocking demand from Asia. You've got charter rates starting to rise again. You've got a lot of things are tightening up in terms of even Hammerfest as well. I think they extended that now till March 2022. So there's there's quite a lot of issues in the LNG market. And I think the sort of Asian market and this this earlier than usual uh, restocking demand and, of course, the onset of cooling season is partly related to what happened earlier this year and towards the back end of last year when many players were caught out uh, by surprise. And obviously, we saw the price rise to historical levels. So I think there's an element of that involved as well. But yeah, I mean, the recent upside we've seen in prices in European gas hubs is bringing that closer and we should start to see some redirection uh, over the coming weeks. I say redirection, but we'll see some cargoes returning to Europe over Asia. But it's it's very strong demand in both basins now. So yeah, it's, it's not what we expected. Uh-huh. So it's high prices in both markets, but do, do you expect to see that, that spread between them and the differential sort of narrowing in, to an extent where cargoes come flowing back yeah once we see a, a bit of a slowdown in this asian demand uh, then hopefully we'll see with the, with the european hubs are rising so we'll see that spread make it a lot more advantageous to send cargoes back over here whereas the u.s we're still expecting and we're still seeing cargoes arrive uh, from the u.s in west europe probably even more so later in the year in june and july like we saw the cancellations last year we expect even more lng supply from the u.s this year and if you look at the the feed gas numbers and obviously additional trains, etc. We can expect that to help facilitate the quickening of refilling of European storages. One of the key elements here is the subsiding of Asian LNG demand. I mean, that's going to be a key element. I mean, when, if I can pinpoint you, do you see it sort of weeks away, months away? Do you see it happening beginning of June, end of June? Can I pin you down a bit here? It's hard because there's a few things going on. You've actually got the Chinese and the Japanese buyers return from holidays soon, so we might see an uptick in, in spot demand there. We've got restrictions in South Korea on coal burn, so that's going to incentivize more. Japan, obviously, demand is a bit higher, but now probably we're going to get an impact from COVID, especially on city gas, and also in India. India is obviously going to pair back its, and we've seen a couple of cargoes cancelled already. So India is going to pair its demand in light of the COVID uh, advancement there at the moment. So when you said to pinpoint, I'm hopeful of a return in the next month, hopefully things will look a bit brighter. So that's when prices in Europe will also start to ease or will they need to stay at that kind of level, you know, to be attractive for those cargoes? Yeah, we'd like to think the prices might ease a little touch. But as you can see, they're, they're pretty strong at the moment. We've got momentum. We've had about I think eight up days in a row and the MVP and seven out of the last eight or nine in the TTF. So momentum strong and it's supportive when you look at all the factors, like I mentioned, combined earlier. It kind of supports, even though it does seem quite outrageous when you take it back to last year. But this is a very different year in many aspects. And we're also seeing some sort of green shoots of recovery in terms of economic demand. And if you look at crude, which obviously is the bellwether for global demand, it's, it's trying to get towards $70 compared to this time last year. It was half the price. So 
I think things are going to start heating up over the next month or two. And I think in terms of the, the storages as well, I mean, we still have the view here at Refinitiv that there were going to be stronger injections into storage in Q3. And I think that backloading looks a lot more probable now, especially when you take a look at the spreads. So we're hopeful of a little easing in the coming weeks, but especially from such highs, and we could expect it. But there's a lot of surprises been happening in the market this last year. I was even mentioning this to someone the other day, like the Suez Canal issue, what happened in terms of in January with LNG. I mean, there's there's been one thing after another, really, at the moment. So <laughs> the volatility, as I mentioned before, close to close, it's highest it's been for years. So so all this is uh, making things quite unpredictable and hard to, hard to sort of forecast at the moment. Absolutely. So in terms of storage then, Wayne, I mean, as you've mentioned several times, it's it's a key factor here. And and, you know, the injection season has been delayed. Do you think the storage will be filled by, by winter, in time for winter? We expect it to be close to, to fullness by the end of the, of the injection season. But we actually expected injections, like most people, obviously, the market to start a lot earlier. But as I mentioned, we've had net withdrawals in many big facilities in April. And with this persisting cold weather, that may continue. And also the spread to keep harping back to them. But if you look now, you're better off taking that gas out of storage now and then re-injecting, you know, looking to inject later on when prices start to ease because we're in a really high price environment at the moment. And with these spreads with front months at the premium, then why would you start injecting into storage now? So I think price optimization or storage optimization is, is key as well. Um, but yeah, I still believe we'll get filled. But if the LNG that we expect doesn't come and Gazprom don't ramp up their imports and we have any additional issues there's quite a lot of maintenance this summer that could be extended or we could foresee more demand than we expect once we start coming out of these covid restrictions which looking like more possible more so in the uk first and then a bit more so in europe later on in the year so we would expect it to be close to, to fullness but if you look at the prices now this risk premium that's now baked into these prices tell you the market isn't so sure yeah. so what would you think in in terms of Going for what is there, you know, a greater likelihood that we'll we'll stay at this level for longer, or is it are we likely to see easing by you know mid June? I'm hopeful that if we come back and speak to you in a month's time, <laughs> that prices would be a bit lower. Yeah, uh, tell you things have got a lot better in terms of supply and the demand. Obviously, we don't normally talk about this sort of uh, demand of from heating going into it's May, and I'm you know wearing jackets out, and it's it's cold in the morning, like one degrees this morning, so. We need to see that will that will change the dynamic slightly, as will a sort of increase in LNG flux into Northwest Europe, which can only help. And like I said, it was another nail in the in the coffin in terms of anyone who was bearish. Uh, what happened at Montoire? So there's uh, just just another factor. <laughs> Absolutely, I think yesterday I looked out the window and it was snowing here in, in Oslo, and you know, so that's that's happening in May, which is which is not not so so usual, but. Looking out to the winter, you know, we've had, you know, the the cold winter in Asia was a key driver six months ago. Is this, you know, is there is also added concern that this could happen again? Definitely. Um, we, we, we saw it happen. And I think that's what I mentioned, uh, touched upon earlier. I think there's a little bit of the sort of nervousness from players in the Asia market now concerned that they don't want a repeat of last year. No one wants to pay them prices. No one expected them prices that we saw with the confluence of events. Um, so I think an element of what we're seeing now is definitely attributed to that. So I think with that in mind, if a lot more uh, participants are happier with their storages being filled a lot earlier and we get closer to the winter, then I imagine that 
that we might not foresee such problems, but I can't control the weather, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> you can control many things, Wayne, but the weather's no, not one of them. I can't no, control unfortunately, the weather. but but you touched on one aspect also, which I want to just sort of to ask you about just finally. I don't know whether it, it seems doesn't seem quite right to talk about post-COVID when you know see, when we see what's happening in India and in other parts of the world, but in certain parts of Europe, certainly with the vaccination drive, and we can see a sort of light at the end of the tunnel. What's your view here on demand going forward? If I can both ask you, Wayne, and then and then you, Irina. We saw, I mean, if you look through what happened in this heating season, I think European gas demand was up about 5-6% year on year. And again, that's attributed to the colder conditions and also the, the exacerbated by people, uh, more people being in their domestic residence as well as you know, other big large spaces that don't require the heating side of it. But I think industrial demand will start to pick up. And we're already seeing that now. Um, I've seen some some countries now where demand is picking up. And you you got to remember last year when we had some of the more draconian restrictions, especially in countries like Italy, a lot of the heavy manufacturing uh, was curtailed. That's not the case now. So we are seeing more demand. And, and as you rightly pointed out, once we start moving a bit more, once the sort of mobility side of things starts to improve, I think we will see that demand uh, start to increase. And again, that can be another bullish risk. If we're in a certain situation like we are now with, you know, certain market conditions dictating what we're seeing in terms of tightness. So, and I haven't touched on renewables as well. I mean, they've been pretty weak this year as well, which has supported even stronger use of gas this year. This year. Yeah, absolutely. And what's your view here, Irina, and then the post-COVID uh, outlook for gas demand? Yeah, I, I would have to agree here with Wayne that uh, as, as life uh, is getting back to normal, we, we would probably see higher demand uh, coming from uh, industrial sector as uh, production is getting back to normal. And uh, also people are starting slowly, but still returning back to offices. So, yeah, we would probably see life getting back to normal. That's good to hear. I think um, if I were to summarize what you guys have been saying, you know, if we compare 2021 or certainly the month so far compared to the same period last year, it's it's chalk and cheese, really, I think. Uh, so it's uh, <laughs> uh, to coin, coin a phrase. So guys, thanks very much for being on the uh, Monto Weekly podcast. Uh, look forward to inviting you back and, uh, and discussing, uh, you know, the outlook ahead of the winter, possibly as well, uh, once we get into Q3 at some stage. Yes, thank you, uh, Richard. It's always uh, nice uh, to come and speak to you guys. And you actually, yeah, took the word as right in my mouth there. It's, it's a complete contrast, chalk and cheese, when looking at summer 20 to summer 21. So, yeah, let's expect that volatility and uh, uncertainty to continue right until we fill these storages. So, yeah. Hopefully when we speak again, things will be uh, different, not only in the gas world, but also in the normal world. So yeah, here's to that. <laughs> thank you, Wayne. And, and thank you, Irina. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message, any suggestions, questions, or you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.